Welcome to the Schools Out podcast with Mike and Miles. Longtime educators Mike Ditzenberger and Miles O'Shea discuss educational issues to provoke thought and encourage solutions. The potential of public education is limitless. We must work together to overcome obstacles to realize that potential and create new structures that work for everyone. The system is broken. Everyone deserves better. We can get there together. School is out. Now let's get started. Hey, Miles. Hey, Mike. How's it going? It's going great. All right, what are we talking about today? I forget what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) How to support staff, students, school systems, yourself. It's all about support. We're talking about supporting people wherever they are. Exactly. All right, you're bringing this topic to the table, so why don't you lead it off? I'd say, how how do you best support students in your school? And I guess we didn't do a lot of street research this time around because it's a, it's a big philosophical, personal philosophical role that you've got to talk about, but supporting students, and it's, it's, a, big, it's a big idea, but I, I think that where I come from is, is do for people, and if you're going to do for people, I think the students are the first people that you're, you're going to be productive for and, and do for them and, and support them, so... I mean, what's that look like in your building with you, like well, supporting students? I guess I'll talk about it personally first, not from an administrator's role or not from a teacher's role, but just like a personal philosophical perspective. And when you suggested this topic, I thought some about it. And what I came up with is the best way to support people at any layer of the system for me is to have an optimistic outlook for them. Mm-hmm. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the other groups too. Yeah. But to best support students, I feel as though believing in what they can do is the best thing that we can always do for them. Not to think about their limitations, not to think about their strengths and weaknesses, not to focus on those things or even if the student has an IEP or not or whatever that could be just to truly believe that we can help them and get them to where they want to go with an optimistic perspective. Yeah, I think that when you say it like that, it, it individualizes things. You know, them, meaning all students, or perhaps it's even better said, each student. Um, I think for me, when I think of what you just said, it, I, I tend to think that fair and equal are two words that get thrown out the window right away. So fair and equal in, in supporting students, it, it doesn't even come into play. What student A needs might be entirely different than what student B needs. And our jobs as, as people, as adults in a school system is you, you help A and B, it doesn't matter. Whatever anyone needs is what you've got to do your best to provide. So uh, sure. that that'll, that could bog down people like you and me in a school system because of policies and procedures and things like that. But if it's, if it's worth doing for a kid, then you, you do it. Sure. And when you're talking about fair and equal, just had this conversation with some people the other day when we were talking about dealing with students. Fair does not exist. Fair is a place with cotton candy and hot sausage sandwiches. Mm -hmm. We can't look at almost any other layer of society and find where anything is fair. Right. People a lot of times will come to you and say, you have to follow this specific discipline pattern for this student. It's in our handbook. Or we have to follow this specific grade book grading policy because that's what's fair. Even within our own system, 
you can't find too many examples of where this idea that fair, everyone just has to be treated the same, exists. So I think to move away from that, and like you said, treat people the way that they need to be treated or give them exactly what they need is the way to do what's best for students specifically. Yeah, you really touch upon something when you say it doesn't exist anywhere else. It doesn't even exist anywhere else in the school system but for this idea of kids. I mean, think of it this way, and, and I'm not trying to push... Okay, I am trying to push buttons. That's that's the purpose of the <laughs> podcast. Um, I'm picking scabs all the time, but you know, if, if a kid does something, if, if student A does something that warrants a procedural or a policy... Uh, reaction, then why does it only exist for students and not anyone else? So so somebody texts me early in the morning and says, or calls me rather, early in the morning and says, hey, I'm running a few minutes late because the roads are really bad. And my response is, okay, well, when you get here, bring a rep because I'm writing you up for that. That doesn't happen. Right. That does not happen, in the, even in the school, but it, sometimes it's expected to happen for kids. Well, why does it happen for kids? And this is what people will say all the time to you if they want you to treat them fairly. This is the response that I hear a lot. They need to get ready for the real world. Right, and that's not the real world. It's not at all. Not even close. You know, I, there, there's grace for everything. And and not necessarily... No, I'm not saying that grace is needed for every situation, but in supporting students in my role... Determining what is best needed for a kid is my primary, is the first thing that I have to do. What does this kid need? And sometimes I might even ask that. Are you okay? What do you need? Mm -hmm. And that's not just for kids. That's for everybody. That's for adults, teachers, everybody. But if you're going to do what's needed, find that out first. So let me take you in a direction and see if we could go there. To know what's best for a student what I'm hearing is, or what I thought of as you said that, is that we have to know about those students really well first. Yes. We talked about this and at the end of the last podcast that we did. I really liked the conversation that we were getting to, but it's the same kind of idea here. If you're going to personalize your approach in discipline or teaching or grading or anything for the students to do what's best for them and support them, you have to know a whole lot about them first. Right. Um, you, you've got to have that interpersonal relationship with not only the student but the student's family to get a better sense of, of what that kid needs as compared to what maybe a group of kids need, a classroom full of kids need because moving a classroom is moving a bunch of individuals at the same time, which becomes one of the most tricky jobs of any teacher. How do I get a class to move and how do I get a bunch of individuals to move along with the class as I'm delivering a curriculum broadly to a bunch of kids? You've got to know each one of them individually in order to get that done. Expecting to move a classroom full of kids and not knowing them individually, that's a very passive approach because you can just push off your results as to some other barrier that was in the way. Well, that's, that's not my fault. I taught the lesson or whatever. You could say that as a school building. Well, I followed procedure. I don't know why that kid wasn't successful. Um, I know that kind of went in a different direction, but knowing the kid is essential to, to everybody's success, the kid and the group that the kid is with. And what can you do as a teacher or administrator or anyone within the school system for students if you don't know them well? 
well, you can treat them all the same. Mm -hmm. Because just think about this scenario for a second. You, as a teacher, have a student in class who you know their parents outside of school. Mm -hmm. You know a little bit about them. Maybe you've been over to their house and you've met them and you've interacted with them outside of school. Your interactions with them outside of school give you a little bit of insight as to how they behave or what challenges they may have experienced in the past. And then either consciously or subconsciously as a teacher, you treat them a little differently based on those experiences. Some people would say favoritism. I don't. As long as that knowledge is always moving them forward for what's best for them. You know, in saying that, I think that I, I think in such a case, parent meetings are essential to any good practice in education. That's for administrators and teachers and everybody. Getting to meet parents, getting to talk to them, as we talked about in the last episode, perhaps even breaking bread with them. There is an intimate alliance formed with that family. Not even an alliance; it's a relationship that can't be undone, that will constantly evolve. Um, but not doing that, you're expecting that you, you're you're making assumptions. I guess you're you're assuming that everybody's going to meet you because your job is done, your delivery is done. Be it I opened the school or I taught the lesson or you know I I got the district what it needed. Whatever you want to say, you're assuming that that got done and that everybody's going to follow along beyond the burdens of individuals and what they carry with them into the school day. Um, and I can't, I can't say enough that that is far from the truth. And I'm, I'm just thinking of a, of a scene in a movie. It was a war movie. I think it was called Full Metal Jacket. Oh yeah, I'm going, I'm going to reference a Full Metal Jacket <laughs> scene here in a second, where one person keeps messing up. Right? There's one soldier that kept messing up, messing up. It wasn't a soldier. A marine was messing up, messing up, messing up, until finally everybody else ganged up on that one person. And, and beat that guy into submission because, you know what, if I punish the group of people for the wrongs of a couple, the group will overcome and teach those couple to fall in line. Well, I'm here to tell you that does not work in school. That does not work in a classroom. That does not work in a school. If you're going to run an organization like that, you're, you should expect to find negative results. And here's why. Could you possibly do that if you knew the scenario, perhaps? Could you possibly do that if you were confident that that was going to work because you knew the individuals within the group? Maybe. But let's take it back a little bit, not so brutal as a full metal jacket scene. Let's go into a classroom scenario where I've got a classroom that's just talkative, very talkative. And my response to that is, well, they're just talking, and I, this is a chatty group of kids, and, and they just they won't be quiet when I'm teaching. So I'm going to take recess from them. I'm going to take five minutes every time that they keep talking, and that's just the way it is. Okay, well, let's see what the result of that is after a week, maybe two weeks. Two weeks comes down the road. I bet you I got a quarter that says that group is still chatty even after they've suffered having less recess day in and day out, day in and day out. And why is that? Well, because you're treating a group of people a certain way for the needs of a few. There's a couple kids that have needs that are different than the group of kids. And you're going to know right away if taking from the group is going to correct the needs of a few. 
you're gonna know almost instantaneously whether that works. And I'm here to say, it's most likely not going to work. And what happens with that group of students, as soon as the teacher does that, everyone in the room is saying to themselves, I'm not the one who's talking, or I'm not the one who is doing the wrong thing. I'm being punished for something someone else is doing. But the scenario you're outlining is treating everyone the same. I'm going to do the exact same thing for everyone, regardless of your individual behavior or needs. Exactly. And it's not okay because... You if schools, we know of school systems being run this way. It's a very typical way of running a school system. That's where procedures and policies tend to falter. Is this is good for all, and that's just the way it goes. But, that, but that's not the way it goes. Right, and it might be a way to get things done efficiently for the group that falls in line or that meets whatever criteria you have established for them but we fail to consider what happens for those people that aren't part of the group that's complying or learning in the way that we're teaching right down the center for. Yep. Those are the people that we need to think about because if you look at increasingly the people that aren't served by this system, that group is a lot larger than I think you would imagine it to be just on the surface. I don't think we should even, we need to explore that a little bit more too when we start talking about people and not just students. I felt I went right to a student scenario, but what about an adult scenario? What if we treat systems of teachers the same way? When, when, that system, when those systems are in place, you start to hear words that should be red flags. Those teachers or teachers or large, like words that indicate groups of people because we want groups of people to do something, not individuals within groups of people. So we start saying, like, this is a chatty class. Or you start saying, those teachers. Or teachers are doing this. Or the teachers won't. Or you start hearing things like, well, admin won't support. Those large group things that are pointing in, in directions of fixing a large group have... They're easy words to say without indicating that maybe an individual has needs that need to be addressed, good or bad. Mm -hmm. You know, what if, it's, what if it's two teachers that are the only two voices that are being heard, but they're moving a district initiative either because they're, they're advocating for good or advocating that something is, is wrong, and now an entire system of teachers is moving by the voice of two. Very common practice. I mean, think of collective bargaining. Mm -hmm. Collective bargaining does that. You have a bargaining team of, I don't know, four or five teachers that are setting a salary schedule for an entire district. Imagine if that team doesn't communicate with the 400 constituents that it's serving. Now you have a salary schedule and an entire contract built by four to five or five to ten people. What if... I mean, again... This conversation took a, a left turn there, but at the same time, it's the needs and supporting the needs of people is, is it's, it's a big deal. But you're talking about the same thing. You're talking about, in one way or another, supporting people individually. Yes. 
you're talking about breaking free of the constraints of a system that does everything the same for everyone. Yes. In your scenario that you were talking about with the teacher arriving late to school, you have an understanding of what may have made them late. Right. You have an understanding that they may have come to late come to school late twice or 20 times. Right. You understand that. You understand what they need from you in that moment to then best support them moving forward. Right. If they truly have a, a hard time getting to work on time and that's adversely affecting their job or their students, you would address that as a leader the way you know you need to individually for that person. System think would say this person is late by three minutes or whatever. doesn't matter the reason they're written up. Mm-hmm. What does that do to them moving forward? I'm assuming that it's it's going to give them a bit of a sour taste, if, if anything. But I, I can tell you what, I think that you were raised a lot like I was raised. And, and there, there might be people that listen to this and, and go, this is a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. you got to draw a hard line, and that's the way it goes. I'm saying you can be that person. I'm just not that person. Because the first thing that comes to mind when I have a scenario like that, or if I don't have a scenario like that, there are five words that I live by, and that is, how can I help you? And in either scenario, if you're late once and you call me and say, I'm having issues, I'm going to say, are you okay? Do you need anything? Take your time. Be safe. I care about you coming to work. Or if you're late 20 times, how can I help you? Where are you right now that's preventing you from getting to work on time even because I might need you here? Is there something I can do to help with that? Oftentimes, just hearing that from somebody, even in our role, it's it's not off-putting. It's, well, this guy actually cares. And I'm going to do for this guy because he's willing to do for me. And I think that that phrase, how can I help you, we started off talking about students. Then just take that down to the student level. You have a student in class who failed a test. Mm-hmm. In one way of looking at this, we would say, you failed. I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do. The grade is the grade. We're moving on. You might even end up failing this course. In another way of thinking, if you just apply what you just said, how can I help you? We look at the test or the assessment as just an indicator that something wasn't learned here or there might be a problem. And you approach that student and you say, how can I help you? And if that happens early on in a student's career, mm-hmm. I think you start to build a relationship where this isn't something that I can't do as a student. This is something that the people around me are just here to help me do. Right. right. And, and that takes me back to something that you said years ago. If I have a student in my classroom who's failing, who's, who's not doing the quote-unquote work, not producing something or whatever you want to call it, you know, the opposite of how can I help you, just putting a grade on there and saying, well, that kid didn't do it, you fail or whatnot. You said long ago, it, isn't it difficult to say that I taught that without knowing that somebody actually learned it? You can't say I taught that. The idea of teaching something to somebody is that somebody learned something. And if you have a child that failed, what part of that is your ownership? And what part of that is their ownership? And I I dabbled in this a little bit last week, this idea of you've got to meet. 
students and teachers must meet somewhere. And without that meeting, there's no learning, there's no education, there's no school. That's fake. If you're not meeting with all expectations, support, with discipline, with learning, then you're not, the, the job's not getting done. I'm not going to say you're not doing your job. I'm not going to say they're not doing their job. The job is not getting done. And that falls directly in line with how do you support kids. Right. So I, for me, listening to what we've talked about for a little while now, my answer to that initial question would be to meet, be willing to go wherever that student is mm-hmm. and help them get to wherever they need to go. Mm-hmm. For some students, it might be 10% of the way. Yeah. For some students, it might be zero. They might have every single thing they need without us doing very much for them at all. Mm-hmm. For some students, it might be 99. Right. We've got to uplift them to the point where they're starting to see growth and progress and have positive associations with what we're doing. But what students need within education is for teachers and administrators and the system to be able to meet them wherever they are and get them to wherever they need to go. Right. And that takes a, an extreme dedication and focus to developing and maintaining interpersonal relationships with kids, with staff, with your community, board members, everybody. You know, that's not schmoozing. That's definitely not that. That is getting to know people. And that's understanding that everybody coming into this system might need something, might need some sort of support or direction or guidance or anything. Doing for them from wherever you are is essential. I love when we talk about these kind of things to imagine what other people would say in response to what we're saying. Yeah. Because there might be someone listening to this or a whole lot of people that would listen to this within the system and say, those are just two guys talking about these pie in the sky ideas. Mm -hmm. It can't really be that way. My response to that would be, why not? Why can't we do that? So one of the things I know that people would say is, we just have too many people to teach at one time. Mm -hmm. We have 3,000 people in this school district. We can't possibly teach every single student in a way that's best for them at all times. That's why we have the system that we have, Mike and Miles. We can't do that. There's 3,000 people that need our help. If we do a good job of teaching 2,000 of them, that's the best that we can do. I know that that would be a response to some of the things we just talked about in the best ways to support students. Yeah. I don't know why I'm going to do this, but I'm going to wreck this entire conversation right now. I'm going to present a scenario, and it, it, this might even get edited out. It's hard to say, but you you work in a middle school. I work in an elementary school. We both used to work in a high school, but uh, have you ever have you ever had an issue with kids vaping in a bathroom? Is that, a, is that a thing? Once in a while, I have heard of students vaping in bathrooms. Yeah, yeah sometimes that happens. And do teachers get upset about that sometimes, or adults, or anybody? I mean, do you get upset about it? Is it is it concerning? I would, I would say personally, yeah, it's a concern. I don't like that students do it. Right. Yes. Right. So let me put this out there. It, it came to me one time that, you know, there's all kinds of kids vaping in a bathroom. And what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? just kept getting hammered into me. What are we going to do about this? 
What are you going to do about this? What's the policy on this? Is a policy going to help on something like that? Because there is a policy, and I bet you so there's there's been bunches of kids all over the country, all over the state, all over schools everywhere USA that have suffered suspensions, fines, everything else for, for this kind of thing. And I'm betting that many, many times kids that have done those types of things return to the same behavior. And I'm wondering if anybody's ever had a chance to just talk with the kids in, in a different way, take a different approach to things and, and I don't know, maybe say some things like, hey, why do you vape in the bathroom? Just why, and you know what, you have the freedom to say whatever you want to say. And then ask different questions. Be like, do you ever vape in the bathroom by yourself when no one else is around? And now you're going to get eyes opening. You're going to get kids that are tuned into this conversation. What are you talking about? Do you ever just go into the bathroom, into a stall, and vape very, in a very private, solo manner? And I bet you the answer is nope. Mm -hmm. I go into the bathroom with a group of my friends, and we blow clouds all over the place. Right. Right. What's the function? The function is social. The function is something else. And that there is, is where our attention should be in this particular scenario. So anybody that says to me, you guys are off in la-la land, and you're talking about some weird stuff. Okay, well, my, my response to that is going to be, how's your suspensions working for vapes in the bathroom? How's that working out for you? Right. Because I'm saying if you can identify with individual kids and build their leadership capacity within that bathroom or within the function of what they're doing, and you get into their schema of how they present themselves in school, and you want to build them up as a, as a person and highlight what's important to them, focus on them. Focus on that student and not the policy on how we're going to punish groups of people. I get it, 99% of the kids aren't going into the bathroom to do what they're going to do, and 1%, then figure out why. What's the function of that, and how can I help you? How can I help you with that? Right, and I know how you think a little bit from talking to you for a long time. You think in terms of analogies. You're not just talking about vaping in a bathroom. You're talking about the whole system. Yes. And you're talking about the response to what people might say to this. People are going to say, we have to have a policy. We have to follow the policy. The policy works for whatever. Your point is that the policy doesn't work for whatever. It doesn't even work to stop whatever it is you're trying to stop, vaping or any other behavior. There's people that are doing that around the policy, and you could make a new policy or 10 new policies or the world's best policy with 20 consultants from wherever. And it's still going to be an issue unless you focus on the individuals, their needs, and doing what's best. Miles, I think we should probably talk about what it looks like to support staff as well. Um, this doesn't necessarily have to be how do you support staff as a principal. It, it could be how do you support staff as a human being. Um, one of the things that I, I tend to do frequently is, is take an inventory of, of what's the mood of the building. What's the Does that help me determine what people might need or asking people very frequently, is everything okay? Is there anything that you feel that you need? Do you feel supported? Um, that sounds kind of hokey, but it's something I do very regularly. So When you're trying to support staff members that way, do you, and you've been in your building for long enough, hopefully that you have pretty good rapport 
with your staff? Do you feel as though people are open or willing to share with you what they need and allow for that to happen? Yeah, I think that I think it it gives them the the comfort level to know that I'm I'm one I'm approachable. That two I value conversation with them, and that it it tends to generate ideas within them that make them their their way to me, um, in a very active way. Like, hey, I, I'd like to try something like this. What are your thoughts on that? Those types of conversations are the best ones that I could possibly imagine. When people come to me and say, I've got an idea, what are your thoughts on this? That means to me they feel comfortable enough that they want to do something that's right for their kids and they're asking for support on what my thoughts are on that. So they've already kind of thought it through. They're looking to, to kind of bounce it around a little bit. That's, that is amazing and to have that throughout a building or to have it start with one or two people and then spread to more that's that's as best as I could ask for in supporting staff so as a, a building leader and I know this from talking to you I feel as though you're knowledgeable enough about generally about most topics within education that if a staff member were to come to you and say Mike I want to try this or what do you think about this that you're not going to, you could do some research on that for them as well, but you're not going to have to take a period of time to respond. You're ready to have a conversation in the moment and draw on experiences or knowledge or whatever to say, let's think about this. And just from me listening to you, I'm thinking that in the role of a building leader to support staff, part of that role is to be very knowledgeable generally in a wide variety of topics that you're going to be able to support those types of things. Yeah, and I, I think that I think people come to me with those things based on the vision that I project in the building. I'm pretty open about it. You know, do for people, do for kids. Um, basically, in, even in, in a particular order, we do what's right by kids and then what's right by the building in that order. Um, so yeah, you've got to be knowledgeable and, and be firm in your conviction to the vision and understand like how is this going to best serve kids within that vision. So those when those things come to me, I'm always excited about it. But there there's a double edge to that too. I mean, you you I've learned through experience you can't be pushy in trying to help people either. Um, some people aren't ready. Some people aren't ready for an absolute Mr. Fix-It to come <laughs> charging through the hallway like I'm going to fix everything or I'm going to help you. Um, an example is, you know, I, I noticed that somebody was having a really bad day and I walked into the classroom and said, hey, I got your class. Why don't you go grab a cup of coffee? And man, did that blow up in my face so bad because that person didn't know they were having a bad day. And it was, they didn't, they didn't even see me making the assumption that they were having a bad day. And they, they almost broke down badly saying like am I doing something wrong I didn't know it was that bad I didn't know it was bad enough that that the principal would walk into my room lesson learned you know you've really got to study people and who they are personally to be able to interact at that certain level of helping someone so I like this right now because I'm getting to pick your brain a little bit about your experiences and your perspective so I'm going to keep going with that mm -hmm. let's say that you're trying to support a staff member and one of the ways that I see staff members needing support a lot is just with 
classroom management or classroom discipline or those types of things. Let's say, first scenario, you have a staff member who comes to you and they say, Mike, I'm really struggling with my classroom management right now. They're coming to you. How, how do you see yourself best supporting a teacher in that position? That's, that's a rare circumstance that somebody would let their guard down enough to come and say, I'm having an issue with classroom management. Um, it, it would probably come out a different way, but in order to support a teacher in that scenario, I would first say, well, let me, let me come into the classroom. Let me see what's going on. And be, before I even go into the classroom, I'm just going to walk by several times. All right, let's just see what the kids are looking like, sounding like from a distance. And that's going to have to be very regular, just walking by, because as soon as I put myself in place, it kind of taints the environment, because now my presence might affect what kids are doing. I don't, I don't want that to, to be a thing. Oftentimes it doesn't, though. Kids are going to act for me the same way they'll act for anybody. They're going to, they're going to meet my expectations if they know them. And then uh, I think right as soon as I, as soon as I start observing what's going on, I, I've got to get into the classroom, and then I've got to start working with that teacher and, and, and very subtly without, without stinging their pride is, is going to be the first thing I want to do. I don't, I don't want to be firm and say, well, you're doing it wrong. Everything you're doing is wrong. No. No, I want to take what, what you want out of the classroom and build from that. Like, what, what do you want as a teacher? What are your expectations of kids? If your expectations are that they're silent, then we must train them to, to be silent. And if that's what they need is to be silent, we can train that. But there's going to be a level of stamina for that. How long can a second grade student be silent? How long can a second grade student sit in their seat for however much time? Those things all need to be looked at and discussed openly. And then we're going to talk, what do we do in scenarios where they're not meeting you? So what, what happens if kids aren't meeting you? Then we've got to, like we, we did earlier in the podcast... What does that student need? Because inevitably, we're going to find out that it's probably not every kid in your classroom has the same need. right? If, if you're having trouble with classroom management as a teacher, it's more than likely a few kids, one or two or three or four or five, that have separate needs as the rest. But those one or two or three or four or five kids are creating a scenario where more and more kids now are, are joining their side of things. So we need to lay out some expectations and work on how you're going to deliver that as an individual teacher. And I'm going to comment on that when I give you that scenario on classroom management. Most likely, if a teacher needs support with classroom management, they're also going to need support with instruction or student achievement because those two things go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. If you're saying these five students in a class are struggling behaviorally, most likely they're struggling academically as well. Right. So let me just present one more scenario. So let's say you have some staff members in your building that, from your perspective, are struggling either instructionally or classroom management-wise or whatever that is. You feel as though there's some teachers who need your support. Yes. What's the best way to go about providing that support? And I know part of it's going to be based on their individual needs, but to provide that support without, like you said before, hurting their pride or damaging what they are doing professionally. Well, the good thing about scenarios like that in my position are I'm, I'm assuming that 
Well, I, I can't make too many assumptions, but it, it would be different if the student was in kindergarten and this is the first year that I've got to know that child and that family. But that's the first thing I'm going to do is get to know the kid, even as a principal. If it's a second grader, third grader, fifth grader, sixth grader, I, believe me, I know the kid. I mean, I, I, I know most of the kids in the building. I'm familiar with most of their families. Um, and if it's early on in the school year, I have something to add you know, or something to share with that teacher about that kid. I, I guarantee I do. Have you considered that this kid might whatever? Or why don't you talk to their family? Or I can even broker that meeting because they're good people. And let's let's talk about it so that we can, again, from the last podcast, so we can set goals that align with the family's goals. Um, what's best for that kid? Maybe that's what's what's getting in the way. And oftentimes you'll hear parents say, well, we're struggling at home too, so bingo. Now we've got a different angle just through conversation. Well, we're struggling at school with this child. You're struggling at home with this child. Let's figure out if the child needs help. So it, it's not even a matter of classroom management in a class now. It's a matter of I have a student who has need, and we got to figure that out because that need is starting to present itself through misbehavior, through attention-seeking or avoidance or whatever that is. Now, now we have a better angle to approach this. Okay. When, I, when I'm thinking about the best ways to support teachers or staff members in a building, two words come to mind for me. The first one is honesty, and the second one is trust. Mm-hmm. And I think those go hand in hand. But I read a good book a little while ago from a business leadership perspective but it was about having honest conversations with employees from a management perspective. And basically what the book said is that even in business, not just in education, leaders often shy away from the honest, hard conversations that need to be had. But what the, what the employees need, or in this case, what the teachers need most from their leaders is an honest conversation about their strengths, their weaknesses, and the things that they can improve. If a teacher is doing things that aren't best for students, what they need deep down is a leader who can come to them and say, we need to change some things, or these are my expectations for you. And I think generally what happens in education a lot is that those conversations are most easily avoided, Mm -hmm. and those things go left unsaid for long periods of time. They could go left unsaid for someone's entire career. Yes. You could have someone at the end of their career that maybe never taught the way that they could teach because the true expectations weren't ever communicated to them. I think you can flush those things out very quickly. Um, and this, Again, this is a, a very biting statement, but you'll hear people or you'll hear individuals say things there's comments that come out like well i've been doing this for 20 years i think i would know those comments are red flags to me because that that's not necessarily a red flag against that person it's against the system and everybody that that person's come in contact with that's tried to lead them as soon as i hear things like well i've been doing this for 20 years that tells me that you're defending what you're doing after being challenged for doing it I'm going to defend what I'm doing with my tenure. And my tenure says that what I'm doing is right. And I'm saying, so nobody else has ever told you in 20 years that that particular practice isn't healthy. Let me give you a quick example, because I am, I am that person with analogies. 
what if what if you walk into a building or, or what if you walk into a classroom and you see um, there there's there's kids in a classroom and you see a student student's piece of work being projected onto a onto the wall and it's it's a non-example of work. See kids, this is what we don't do. To me, that's that that's gonna end the second I see that. That is an absolute non-negotiable. You cannot do that. You are damaging kids by doing that. And if you let that go without support, you are now part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so when you challenge that, and if that's the first time that it's been challenged in, in a person's 20-year tenure, you're going to hear that. I've been doing this for 20 years. I think I know what I, what's best for kids. And I'm going to walk into you, and we're going to have a conversation that sounds a little like, no, you don't. And with what I, <laughs> what I said about you earlier, or really any great building leader, is that you have the knowledge and the research to back up whatever practice you would challenge that you don't believe is best for right. children. You won't just walk into a room and say, we don't ever do that and leave. No. You walk into a room and say, we're not going to do that because, and right. be able to fill in the blank. Right. And, and again, that, that scenario is something that, I guess in my mind, if I have to triage something and, de- and determine its, its level of emergence, that would be one that would end immediately upon seeing it. Like, I'll let that lesson continue, but right at the end of that lesson is going to be like, this is unhealthy, we're not going to do this, and this is why. I see what you're trying to do, but here may be three other ways of doing the same thing without putting a kid down in order to do it. Yeah, I'm going to have things in the backup, but I, believe me, that will end. It's not going to continue. Um, but then you've got things that aren't that aren't as emergent as that. How do you how do you say like an, another thing that I that I promote small group instruction. How do you get teachers or individuals or anybody to want to engage in something that you know is right, but you're not going to say, we're doing this now? <laughs> something like that, that you, you know is right, you can't just insert into somebody's day without teaching them and having discussion and professional learning about it. Now you're not trying to stop something, you're trying to promote something. Again, that's how systems, I think, fail too. Hey, everybody, we're going to start doing this now. Make it happen. Mm-hmm. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> So let me return to the other word that I said. I said honesty, and then I said trust. And when you were talking about implementing anything new, say you really desire for your teachers to teach in small group instructional model. Mm -hmm. What I think that they would need most is trust. And that trust would be trust in the building leader to know that if I go out on a limb and try something new that I'm not comfortable with, that if it looks messy or if it doesn't quite go the way I want it to go for a while, I have enough trust in my administration that they're not going to come down on me then for this. They're going to support me in my effort to try and do what they want me to do. Right. That Yeah, those, those things are going to start small too with a lot of freedom to fail. Lots of freedom to fail. So... Maybe you, you're getting the idea because I'm dropping it around a little bit that I'm into this and I want to see this you know, attempted or maybe, maybe encourage somebody to try it just for a day or two. And as that, as that starts to pick up momentum and people see success with it or failure, have conversations about the failures and the successes. 
and see if you can't urge it on a little bit more. If I just don't like the idea of dropping things on people and saying this is the way it is now. That trust means that people are going to come to me with the good and the bad. And then how do I take that? Maybe I'm being told that that has to happen. Maybe my central administration team is saying, you're going to do this. Okay, great, thanks. And there's an honest conversation with staff saying, we're going to do this. Here's why. You know, I don't necessarily have to say because I've been told to, but if it has to get done, we have to do it together. And I'm going to be the, the person who takes those failures and, and turns them around and say that these are needs that we have. And then you just got to the point that I was going to make right before you said that. You're going to be there with them yeah. and to support them and to give them what they need that they might not already have. Right. You're invested in this as well. It's not just something, whatever it is, that you're being told to do and don't believe in. It's something that's going to happen and you're going to get them there with you. Right. And I've seen it before where it's not like that. And I'm not saying that I'm like the best thing since sliced bread, but believe me, I've seen it before where if they don't get there, that's exactly what's said. Well, they just, they're not doing what I expect them to do. Well, no, that's, that's not the role of a good leader. That's not the role of somebody in the classroom at the district level, at the admin level, whatever. You, you're not just going to like, you're not going to throw them under the bus and say, well, they, that group word again, teachers aren't doing it or they don't want to do it. No, that's the role of the principal to say, I need help to support them. I'm owning the failure. I'm owning the, the discomfort. I'm owning that, but I'm not going to own their successes. They own the successes. I'm their representation for what they need to be successful. Because if I don't own that part of it, they know that, and there's no trust, like you said. Now they don't trust me to be their front, their front man for what they need. And there are models. You can point to them in personal experiences, or you can look at literature on this, where, from a leadership perspective, leaders blame at failure and take the credit at success. Mm -hmm. And you're presenting a model that's the exact opposite of that. Leaders take ownership of failure, and give credit to others for successes. Yes. Um, I developed my own little saying. It's, it's kind of stupid, but a while back somebody said, hey, Mike, you know, you, you should do this. I mean, you should really promote this. This could be a real feather in your cap. And my response to that became a saying that I say often now is, there is no feather because there is no cap. And I don't know if that makes sense. It might not even make sense to the listeners, but there, it's not about credit. It's not. Does credit make someone feel good? Yeah, sure it does. But if I'm going out there seeking credit, then I'm doing it for the wrong thing. Because when I go out there, I'm out there for the kids and the building in that order. And if I'm if I'm at a at a position higher than this, I would suggest that even somebody at at a central admin team would say, I'm in it for the kids and the district in that order. And if I'm at a teacher's place placement, I'm in it for the kids and the class in that order. <laughs> and as you're saying that, what does a feather in your cap mean? That means that you have career aspirations and you're doing something for yourself. In the scenarios that you just described, everyone within the system 
is first and foremost doing things for the students. Right. Everything else will take care of itself. If you're doing, as a teacher, what students need first, then you're going to look like a great teacher. As an administrator, if you're focused on what students need first, you're going to look like a great administrator without ever having to think about your cap or a feather. Right. Just doing what's best for students. Right. Right. And that, I guess people with that, with that outlook, uh, I throw myself in there, you don't realize what people are saying around you because it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people are saying. You assume that you're doing things okay because you're not being told that you're not. But things make their way to you once in a while. And those are feel-good statements. You know, people that give you compliments. It's a really feel-good statement because living within that realm of serving kids is exhausting. It's it's a lot of work. Um, but when you know that kids need that, that kids deserve that, you do it and you don't realize how much work you're, you're putting in and you don't realize all the time what people think of it because that's not as important as getting the job done. It's doing for people, doing for kids, doing for staff. It, that comes first. And, and let's shift gears then and let's talk about how people in the community or parents or families might need support or what ways we can give support to parents and families. Well, I don't. I don't know what your definition of, of doing for people is, but I can tell you what: um, if there's a family that needs something, they're they're going to get it. And how do you find out if if parents need something? Mostly through their kids, mostly through conversations. But pick up the phone, uh, call for more than discipline. Two-legged interviews or one-legged interviews. I'm sorry, not two-legged interviews. One-legged interviews when you're talking with people. Can you assess if they're okay? Are they happy? What's their outlook? And then maybe just ask, are you okay? Do you need anything? How can I help you? How's everything going? Those conversations often bring about a lot. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't hide my cell phone number from parents. They can reach me if they need me. They can call the school. They can call me. Some parents that are high need parents because they don't have everything that they need. They'll they'll call me. They'll text me. They'll say my car's in the shop and I have no way of getting my kid to school because they missed the bus. Well, guess who's on their way? <laughs> That's the way it goes. Those kids have to come to school too. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, you know what? They're going to get dinged for attendance because no, no. Do they need to come to school? Do you need to stay home because it's an emergency for your family? How can I help with that? Like, what? Speaking and like you said, being honest and, and establishing trust. As soon as you do that once or twice for a family, believe me, there's a layer of trust now. There's a layer of trust that they're going to call you again. And let's return to that, that word of trust. I think that's central in any relationship. Let's look at it specifically for supporting families. In any relationship, if trust is not there or if it has been broken, the relationship is going to be broken. Right. There may have been times in whatever family's educational experiences are that you're dealing with that they have reason to mistrust education. And if there's damage there, what can we do to either establish trust or rebuild trust? 
again, you've, you've got to put yourself out there as, as a person who's going to do for them. And that's going to come in many different looks. Um, that's tough. You know, repairing something that's broken is, is different than, than building it from the beginning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that in my own experiences, just in dealing with adults in general, if you can present yourself honestly as someone, we're talking about how we best can support and help, as someone who is willing to help and that can be trusted, first you present those words and at first they're just words. But if you're always there for them and if at times you're doing things that no one else in the past has done or is willing to do, then you're going to be able to support people in new and different ways. Once they're willing to let you in a little bit and let you learn about what their needs are, Mm -hmm. then you can truly support them. Then you can get them what they need. A lot of times, if you're trying to help people, if the trust isn't there, you don't even know what they need. Yeah, and I'll even say that the exact opposite of that, if you if you are covered in a Teflon shell, people know it. People know that you have a Teflon shell around you, that you are going to redirect and deflect everything that comes your way onto somebody else, then they've established that as a characteristic of you, and there will be no trust there. And that is so damaging that the higher up you, you go in an organization the more damage you will do with something like that because now you're creating generational mistrust. Now families don't trust you and their kids don't trust you and their kids' kids may not trust you. Not necessarily you, but the system itself. I don't trust the schools. I've been slighted by schools so bad that now I don't trust the schools and my kids don't either because I don't have a positive thing to say about it. That is very hard to overcome, and that's where somebody has to be able to walk in and and to overcome that lack of trust with your with what you just said, be honest about it. And that first step of honesty is owning all the dirt that's in your garden. If I did wrong by you, I need to be able to say that and then say, now how can I repair and help you through this? And a lot of times, maybe that starts with a conversation that starts like this. Tell me about your negative experiences. Tell me about why you feel the way that you do. Because if, they, if a family is coming to an administrator or even a teacher, whatever layer of the system, and they're coming with preconceived notions of what school is or a level of mistrust, it's because of past experiences. Right. Let's talk about those. Like you said, let's be willing to admit that this isn't perfect, that you may have had negative experiences before. Let's talk about what they are, and let's talk about how they could look differently in the future, or how I would do that differently, or what I will do for you. Right. So I I see the situation where you might have a fence, and you've got people on either side of the fence. You, You may have, like for example, teachers on one side of the fence saying, well, these kids are coming to us because the parents are such and such. Well, you may have parents on the other side of the fence saying, well, these teachers, this is what they want, blah, blah, blah. And they they have no idea, well, there's a fence. There's something in between teachers and parents. There's something in between schools and communities. I think our job as, as people in schools is to kind of hover above that fence and see what that issue is and focus on that issue. 
get into the nitty gritty of things. If you have, if you have teachers or administrators or people saying, well, it's parents, well, there's your focus. Then if, if you know it's parents, there's, there's your energy. Call parents. Talk to them. Establish a relationship with parents because they're sending their kids to you. Why am I punishing a, a kid for the misunderstanding of, of parents and teachers? Let me let me take that let me take that one step further. This is something we've talked about before. When you talked about that fence, you have the families, the community, and then you have the school on the other side. Why not work towards a model where it's just the community? Right. A school community. And everyone within that school system is invested and part of the community. And I'm not necessarily talking about physical location. I think that people can live wherever they want to live and still be invested and part of the community. To be part of a community, that means to intimately know the needs of the people who live there. Mm -hmm. To know what their fears are, what their hopes are, what they want, and to work together to get that. And for some reason, a lot of times in education, we've drifted a little ways away from that, I feel like, and it is that community versus school or school versus community where it should be just together where everyone's interests are served together right and i can't help but to think that a statement you made a while back on on another podcast on another episode was do no harm by my kid that should be the bare minimum that's the bare minimum do no harm to my kid i mean geez what what kind of fence has has been built up that, that that's coming from you. Not necessarily that that that's where you start, but just imagine that I'm sending my kid to a school and I have no idea what's going on there for eight hours a day. I'm concerned. Just please don't, don't mess them up. Versus what you just said is, I have an active part in what goes on in that school. You've communicated it to me so well. I feel comfortable calling at, at a notice, and I, I think that you would too, for good, for bad, for, for all of it. Our doors are open. We have events at the building. If I need help, I know that the first place I'm going to call is the school because they might have the resources to help me. They definitely have the people there that will help me because they're concerned about me as a person. And then there's something that I love that I'm working towards myself, but it's far way out there because... I'm not going to make excuses. I'm just going to tell you that it's a far way out there of the model of school as community hub where you don't have school and community like we were just saying, where the school is the community, where events that take place in the community happen at this building, where services that are offered in the community are offered through this building, where we use this building seven days a week to serve the community. We celebrate there. We learn there. We do all types of awesome things at this place. And like you said, when people need something, they come there. When great things happen, they happen here. And it's just a different way of looking at the school, but it's the community hub. It is the community. So... I think that it goes along with this episode well, and if you are not supporting all things that go into that, 
That is such a far off idea that it's probably not even been thought of by some. But the layers of support for kids, for teachers, for families all have to be there for that to happen. But I think that that might be a nice little segue too, because what you're talking about right there, if it's not already in place, which I don't assume it is in in all schools, um, if that's not in place and you're working toward that, how do you support yourself in reaching or in, in traveling to get to that goal? Because that's exhausting for you as, as a person, as an individual. And that, that I think is something worth saying. Like, where do you find support? And, and I would like to say that, you know, I've asked this of several, several people, even like high, high up presenters who have come and done keynotes. Like, what level of support do you have? And I often get, well, my team, my administration team is, is my support. And I think that's great that people have that. But sometimes you, you, Miles, I know, have ambitions that are they're way out there, and you have you have not way out there, but are very high. You have you have great expectations, and we've talked about how sometimes your your team doesn't always meet you at those expectations because they're very lofty and they're very difficult and they take a lot of work to do. And so you you could you could find yourself swimming solo. What, right. what support do you find for yourself? While you were saying that, I thought of something I was just working on this morning. I was working on a social-emotional learning program for our school. And for this upcoming week, I included a quote, and I have forgotten the exact words. But it was something to the effect of that you must love yourself first. And I don't know why I thought of that. Maybe because I was just writing that this morning while you were saying that. But I think that... For anyone within the education system, whether it be a teacher or a building level administrator or above that, the ability to truly believe passionately in your mission as an individual is first and foremost the support that you need. Because if I walk into a building or I walk into a meeting or wherever and I start talking about these lofty ideals that I have of what education could be and I'm grounded in that core belief that I know that this is what is best and people can take shots from any direction they want and I'm ready to defend them but I love the fact that these are my ideals and values and I'll defend them forever then all of those shots that people are willing to take or throw at me don't matter and anyone who's trying to do something different within the education system is going to take a lot of shots. But if you, for me, my answer to that is, if you just remain grounded in your own beliefs and conviction that what you are doing is right for kids, none of those things will ever matter because what is right and just always wins. People who are on the other side of that will not win because they don't have the right answers. So... To stay committed, grounded in who you are and what you're doing, you for me, you don't need an administrative team. You do need like-minded people to throw things off of and to get rejuvenated sometimes, but all you need are your own beliefs and convictions and commitment to them. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. That's very powerful. I'm not even going to add to that because how, how could you? I mean, if, if, you, if you yourself 
can't be a, a strong support network for for what you believe in, then I mean that that's that's what grounds us all, isn't it? I mean, you you don't walk in into a situation saying I'm just going to do what everybody else wants. Not necessarily, as long as you're going to do it within your own convictions. I'll tell you when I feel the most lost at times is when I am forced or feel myself straying away from doing the things that are most related to those core convictions. And to get back, all I really have to do is reflect on what those are. But when I feel most lost, it's either when I'm being asked to do things that are too far away from those things or forced, or I've lost my own way a little bit. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, we talked about that prior to starting this episode. Was you know what what's the what's the worst thing that we could do that we know is wrong, but we have to do it anyway because we're forced to do it. We have a kid who needs certain things in his life and is is acting a certain way because of those needs. Does some infraction and now. The best thing that we know for this child is to be in school, and now I have to suspend him out of school. Because I have to, because that's the policy, because that's something that we said was right for all. Obviously, there's certain policy violations that warrant suspensions, but I'm talking things like, okay, so this is his third minor infraction, and, and that will lead to a third major infraction and the policy says if you have three major infractions you have to do ISS and the child's not going to do ISS and now they're suspended out of school. Well that policy just violated everything that that kid needs. That kid needed something and has been racking up discipline or whatever and we're saying that you need to fall in line with the needs of everybody else or else you're excluded. Those are the things that you're saying that I'm agreeing with that that gets in the way and that beats people like you and me up. Right. So, is there a solution to it? Yeah. Yeah, there is a solution to it. I mean, we've got to be honest and trustworthy with all of our families and defend them and be advocates for our kids and not be just passive issuers of policy. And you started with the initial question, what do people need? We had considered students, we considered teachers, we considered administrators. To recap some of the things we talked about, we talked about honesty, we talked about trust, and I know we've talked about open communication. And to me, that's like the last most important component of all of this, the ability to communicate honestly and openly with everyone Mm -hmm. to support them. Communication with our stakeholders, whoever they are, to me seems to be what everyone needs most to be supported. Yeah, if you if you as a system struggle to say we have an excellent system of communication, then I would say that you you struggle to have an effective system because that that is paramount. And and I'm glad that you brought that up because Trust and honesty will not exist if you don't have a strong and safe system of communication. Like anybody could say, I'm trustworthy and I'm honest. Maybe they are. But do people know that? Do they feel it? Is it communicated to them through your words and actions? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Miles, you could say that... You could say anybody is is honest and trustworthy, but behind closed doors, if you know you're going to get your face screamed off for something, then 
Well, hold on a second. Yeah. What's the definition of trust there? I trust that if I need something, I'll get it from you. But then I also don't know what to trust when the door closes. Right. Or maybe I trust you in front of other people, but in a private conversation. Or the other way around, I trust you privately, but in the open in front of others, you're going to put me down. Right. So that's not real trust. That's not real trust. And that doesn't come, that's not open communication either. That's not safe communication. I've thought of this just in the moment, but maybe uh, a test that anyone at different layers of the system could do for themselves to see where they are just based on some of the things that we talked about. For a teacher, ask yourself, how many of my students and their families do I really know? Mm -hmm. For an administrator, how many teachers in my building and their families do I really know and understand? And how many students in my building and their families do I really know and understand? For upper levels of administration, it might seem difficult for them for a superintendent, assistant superintendent, and all those other roles. How many teachers, how many students, how many at different levels of that system do I really know and understand? Right. That, that I think, is the, the biggest issue right there because as you climb up, into those levels you're you're asking people to do more but that's the job that is the job and, and if you're doing it for some other reason other than helping people i i want to challenge that i definitely want to sit down and have a conversation about it and doesn't the superintendent superintendent still need to know the students of the district maybe more than anybody I would, and their families i would think so doesn't the assistant superintendent or the director of curriculum or the director of student services and all those different layers, the, the students and their families are still what's most important. That's who we're serving. I mean, that's who we're serving. <laughs> so I don't know if you want to wrap this one up, Mike. We've talked a lot about how best to support people. I think we've come to some some pretty good points. I've, I feel good about this conversation again. At least, in the very least, it's helpful for, for me to have this conversation because it made me think about some things that I have not thought about, at least in a long time, and some things I can continue to be committed to each and every day. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I, I appreciate the conversation. I, I think it's good to, to get these things out and, you know, kind of jam back and forth with them. So thank you. This has been the School is Out podcast with Mike and Miles. Continue the conversation and explore past and future episodes at schoolisout.org.